Okay, welcome back to HealthSpan. This is episode 6, and this is going to be part 3 of the Diabetes Code by Dr. Jason Fung. So Jason Fung starts out part 3 by talking about diabetes as a disease of dual defects. So to develop full-blown type 2 diabetes, there's really two main things that need to happen, and he says that this occurs in two separate phases. So the first thing we all know is the insulin resistance. So this is phase 1. And the second phase that occurs closer to full-blown diabetes is the development of beta cell dysfunction. So we'll go ahead and start with phase one, which is the insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. So we can't talk about insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia without talking about the visceral fat deposition around our organs. So as if you listened to my earlier podcast, you know that visceral fat deposited in and around our organs is one of the main contributors to high insulin resistance. And the very first place that this fat is going to accumulate is going to be in our liver. So our liver is, again, this metabolic hub uh, in, in our body, and a lot of the metabolic processes are occurring here. And we know that once excess dietary carbohydrates and proteins are stored as glycogen, once the glycogen storage, storage is full, we move on to de novo lipogenesis. So DNL converts the glucose into fat. So when DNL exceeds the export capacity of the liver, fat begins to accumulate in the liver. And again, this is one of the main things that is driving type 2 diabetes. So fat accumulation in the liver can also be known as NAFLD, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So for the longest time, anytime we thought about fat in the liver, it always had to do something with alcohol. But we now know that accumulation of fat can also occur and is extremely comorbid with these type 2 diabetes. So Jason Fung states here that obese individuals have about 5 to 15 times the rate of fatty liver and up to 85% of type 2 diabetes have fatty liver. And even without diabetes, those with insulin resistance alone have higher levels of liver fat. NAFLD is estimated to affect at least two-thirds of those with obesity. And moreover, to make things worse, the incidence of NAFLD in both children and adults have been rising at an alarming rate, increasing in parallel with obesity and type 2 diabetes. So we see this comorbidity with NAFLD and type 2 diabetes. And we know that this insulin resistance is really occurring from this accumulation of fat in our liver. And he talks about a quick experiment where researchers fed overweight volunteers an extra 1,000 calories of sugary snacks daily in addition to their normal food consumption. Now, 1,000 calories, it sounds like a lot, but all, all it is is really consuming two small bags of candy, a glass of juice, and two cans of Coca-Cola per day. So that's it for the 1,000 calories. And what happened after three weeks is that the, the body weight increased by only 2%. So that's, that's not really a lot. But the real problem with, is that the liver fat increased by 27%. Which, caused by, which is caused by the identical increase in the rate of de novo lipogenesis. So, this, as he puts it, this fatty liver was far from benign, as blood markers of liver damage is increased by similar 30%. So, we're, we're measuring ALT, AST, which are these mar- blood, liver, liver markers in the blood that can, kind of correlate with the damage that's going on in our, in our liver. So... This is the bad news with consuming all this excess calories, excess sugar. But the good news is is that fatty liver is actually a completely reversible process. So really all we have to do is empty the liver of its surplus glucose 
and drop insulin levels back to normal in the liver. And this will help reverse the damage that has been done by, by the accumulation of, of the fat. So he puts here that fatty liver is the harbinger of insulin resistance, but it is really the only the beginning. So fat can also accumulate within other organs as well, including the skeletal muscle and the pancreas. And this also plays a leading role in the development of type 2 diabetes. So we're going to go ahead and talk about fatty muscle. So as we know, fat should only be in our adipocytes. That's where it should be. And it should not be stored in our muscles. And what happens is the skeletal muscles, they burn the bulk of the glucose available after meals and store their own supply of glycogen to provide quick bursts of energy. And this muscle glycogen is not available for use by other organs of the body. And normally little fat is really found in the skeletal muscle. So the, this fat in muscle is called intramyocyte lipid accumulation. So intramyocyte meaning within the muscle lipid accumulation. So fat within the muscle. And th this is what's going on once we have excess fat that cannot be stored in our adipocytes. So the simple question you're probably thinking to yourself is why can't we just, why can't this muscle burn off this fat? And this process, this answer lies in the process known as the Randall cycle. So the Randall cycle is a a cycle that is well beyond the scope of what I'm going to discuss. But basically what this Dr. Philip Randall described was that he, he basically demonstrated that cells can burn glucose. Cells that are, are burning glucose could not burn fat and vice versa. So if you're burning glucose, you can't burn fat. If you're burning fat, you can't burn glucose. So your body simply cannot use both fuel sources simultaneously. You're either burning sugar or fat, but not both. So let's say we're our, uh, we, the body's ability to block the use of glucose by relying on fatty acids instead of, instead of this uh, glucose, we're essentially creating something called physiological insulin resistance. So if, if we're burning fat instead of glucose, this glucose is going to begin to pile up. And because we're burning fat, we're not burning glucose. And this is a type of physiological insulin resistance going on. Of course, this is reversible because once we start burning glucose instead of fat, our glucose levels are going are gonna to go back down. So again, as he puts it, the opposite is also true. When the body is burning glucose, it cannot burn fat. So, so what happens is in this Randall cycle, it ensures that the skeletal muscles cannot simply burn off the excess fat when they are fully saturated with glucose. So again, they're burning glucose, not fat and the fat will end up accumulating. And that is, in essence, I didn't do the best job of explaining this, but you can read more about the Randall cycle, but that's really what's going on. Because we're, we're burning glucose in our muscles, this fat is going to end up being accumulated because we can't burn both simultaneously. So that's, that's the Randall cycle. Again, this is well beyond the scope of what I'm going to be discussing, but that's essentially how we're developing this fatty muscle. So we talked about the fatty liver and we talked about the fatty muscle and we're going to go ahead and talk about the beta cell dysfunction next so again two phases going on here the first phase is the insulin resistance which is being driven by fat accumulation in our organs besides our adipocytes and the second phase is this beta cell dysfunction now for the longest time and this is what i thought for the longest time was that beta cell dysfunction really occurred because the pancreas just ended up burning out. So this was the common hypothesis that has been going on, was that 
our beta cells are working so hard, they just end up pooping out and they become they become burned out. And this this theory has been around for for the longest time, uh, but we kind of have more prevailing reasons why this is not true. So he puts it here that the prevailing hypothesis is that beta cells are simply worn out from overproducing insulin for so long. So like a rickety old engine that has been revved too many times, the excess chronic workload has caused irreversible damage. However, there's main reasons why this this paradigm of chronic progressive scarring of the pancreas is, is not true. So the burnout hypothesis is not true for, for multiple reasons, and I'll start with the first one. So first, beta cell dysfunction has been proven to be fully reversible. So we can actually reverse this this beta cell dysfunction. It's not it's not as if like your beta cells burn out and you can't really they they just stop working. So we know that this is a reversible a process going on. So that's that's the first reason that it's not really a burnout. The second reason is that with excess use the body generally responds with increased not decreased function. So if you think about working out at the gym, we know that when you're working out, you the let's say you're working out your muscles, the muscles actually get stronger and they're not burning out. And when you're excessively working, let's say a gland like uh, your adrenal gland or your muscle, they end up get they actually get bigger. So they get hypertrophied, not atrophied. So excessive work, you you're actually getting bigger, not smaller. So we know that this again is is another reason that uh, beta cell burnout is isn't a thing. Now the third reason is that beta cell burnout implies that damage occurs only due to ex due to long-standing excessive use. So we know this is not true because if you think about di- people de- developing diabetes, they're becoming younger and younger, like ages ten and younger than ten. So we know that you can't you can't develop burnout because these people have these these children are so young and they don't have really this chronic time uh to develop without burn without burning without burning out they don't have this they're so young that i'll basically i'll, I'll say what he says so beta cell burnout implies that damage occurs only due to long standing excessive use so it takes many decades over acti- of over activity to produce scarring and fibrosis and the rising epidemic of type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents clearly proves this concept false. So with type 2 diabetes now being diagnosed in children as young as 3 years old, it is inconceivable that any part of the body has already burned out. So again, these children are too young to actually burn out their beta cells. Now, if it's not beta cell dysfunction, what is actually going on here? So the the same mechanism of insulin resistance is the same mechanism as what's going on here. In the beta cell dysfunction, the it, it, it's again the the accumulation of the fat. So, during the first phase, fatty liver and fatty mus- muscle create increased insulin resistance, and in the second phase, fatty pancreas creates beta cell dysfunction. So the pancre- the pancreas is not burned out; it is merely clogged with excess fat. So, it's this excess fat around the pancreas that's really causing this quote unquote beta cell dysfunction and burnout. That's that's really what's what's going on here, uh, to develop full full blown type two diabetes, and the more fat that is found around the pancreas, the less the insulin is being secreted. So simply put, fatty pancreas, fatty liver, is the difference between type two di- between a type two diabetic and a non diabetic. Now, luckily, again, 
this is a reversible process. And we know this is reverse, reversible in, in really two main ways. So if you think about someone who gets a bariatric or weight loss surgery, we know that obese type 2 diabetics that have excess pancreatic fat, when they get this surgery, it reduces the amount of fat around our organs and it's re- reduced, restoring normal insulin secreting ability. So when we're restoring insulin secreting ability, the result is successful reversal of this type 2 diabetes. And if you don't want to get surgery, there's, there's going to be another way as well. So bariatric surgery is not the only method of achieving these benefits. We know that from this counterpoint study, which is a, one, of the study was, one of the studies being, being done, we know that severe caloric restriction decreases the amount of fat in the pancreas. So if we restrict our, if we restrict our calories, we can decrease the amount of fat in our pancreas and reestablish its ability to secrete insulin within weeks. So th- this is the good news, is that it's a reversible process. Type 2 diabetes, it doesn't have to be this chronic debilitating disease. We can actually reverse the process. So again, to summarize, the, tw- the twin defects of type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction. Insulin resistance caused by fatty liver and fatty skeletal muscle. Beta cell dysfunction caused by fatty pancreas. So they are manifestations of the same essential problem, intra-organic fat accumulation driven by hyperinsulinemia, which is caused ultimately by too much glucose and then fructose. So he transitions into this etiology of too much glucose and fructose. And I'm not going to be discussing too much about it. We understand that fructose is very bad for us. Fructose is a single sugar carbohydrate. And it wasn't really until Dr. Robert Lustig came around where Dr. Robert Lustig was one of the main physicians who warned us about eating too much sugar. And he has this brilliant YouTube video called Sugar, the Bitter Truth. I recommend watching it on YouTube. And basically, he was the first one to talk about the dangers of sugar. And the sugar epidemic started around the 1970s. But unfortunately, the same, the same time the 1970s was going on, we know that dietary fat was the, this is the macromolecule that was getting, you know, pub, this was public enemy number one, as he puts it. This is the one that was being criticized the most. And the concerns about excess sugar kind of faded like the, the, the last rays of sunset. That's the way he puts it. So we were so, we were so much focused on dietary fat as this public enemy that excess sugar kind of faded in the background. And we saw this correlation of rise between sugar consumption and also type 2 diabetes as well. So fructose is bad for us for many reasons. And it is even more strongly linked to obesity and diabetes than glucose is. So this is for many reasons. And the first one is that whenever... Uh, so where, whereas every cell in our body can use glucose for energy, none can use fructose except the, the liver. So only the liver metabolizes fructose so when we're eating a large quantity of fructose it it heads straight to our liver and since no other cells can since no other cells can metabolize it and what happens is the liver will break down this fructose into different products like glucose lactose and glycogen and they, they the liver does this without any limitations so there's there's no limitation with the amount of breakdown this fructose of fructose that can happen so the more you eat, really, is the more you're going to be metabolizing. And this is a problem, too, because we know fructose is highly processed. And when this processing is going on, a lot of the protein fibers 
and fats and also the the other natural stuff that's found in the the food it's being taken out of the food and we know that the satiating effects of all these constituents is being lost so we're, we ha- we end up eating more and more because we're not, we're not we're not really satisfied it's not satiating to us so we just end up eating a lot more and as a result we digest refined carbohydrates like high fructose corn, corn syrup faster because we're just not feeling full so we eat more and we eat faster and this fructose overfeeding can increase dnl de novo lipogenesis by fivefold so fivefold increase in de novo lipogenesis which again is leading to excess accumulation of fat in our organs so he puts it here that fructose overfeeding can increase dnl fivefold and replacing glucose with a calorically equal amount of fructose increases liver fat by a massive 38% within only 8 days. This fatty liver plays a crucial role in the development of insulin resistance. So again, fructose a lot worse than glucose. Goes straight to our liver without any limitations. It is not satiating and it increases DNL way more than glucose. So for this, for all these reasons, fructose is bad. Uh, this is a very obvious. You should be avoiding all fructose and a high fructose corn syrup. Not good for us. Uh, but I wanted to move forward and talk about this, the next chapter, which is dealing with the metabolic syndrome connection. So I've talked about met- the metabolic syndrome a lot already in, in my previous podcast. And this metabolic syndrome, before it was known as metabolic syndrome, which again to review is, it has different parts to it abdominal obesity, poor lipid panel, uh, high blood pressure, and, and uh, insulin resistance or fasting glucose, a high fasting glucose. And that, that, that again, is metabolic syndrome. And the, the term metabolic syndrome, it was actually known as syndrome X before it was metabolic syndrome. So this, this doctor, Dr. Gerald Reven of Stanford University, he introduced this, the concept of a single syndrome and he just called it syndrome X, which denotes a single variable that is causing a constellation of all these problems of metabolic syndrome. So basically, he's stating that something is going on to cause this abdominal obesity, this poor lipid panel, high blood pressure, and uh, high in- insulin resistance. There's some sort of factor X going on here. So we realize down the road that this factor X, as it turns out, is hyperinsulinemia. So... Factor X, hyperinsulinemia, is causing metabolic syndrome. Everything that I just listed, it, all those different parts of metabolic syndrome are caused by hyperinsulinemia. So I won't go through each one individually. I'll stick to just the abdominal obesity and also the hypertension, how hyperinsulinemia is driving obesity as well as hypertension. So starting with the abdominal obesity, so... The adipocytes protect themselves against overexpansion by releasing this hormone called leptin. So leptin is one of the hormones in our body, and you can remember the the phrase leptin keeps you thin. So remember ghrelin makes you hungry, leptin keeps you thin. So leptin is this hormone that is released from our fat cells, and when it's released, the, the leptin signals to the hypothalamus that we need to start losing fat. So leptin will travel via the blood to a specific nucleus in our hypothalamus. And what it'll do is it'll decrease the amount of neuropeptide Y, neuropeptide y 
and increase the amount of alpha M MSH. So neuropeptide Y normally makes us hungry and makes us eat more. So leptin will decrease that signal and then it'll increase alpha MSH, which is melanocyte stimulating hormone. It'll increase this. And norm normally MSH makes us, tells us that we're full and that we don't need to eat more. So it's doing this dual effect where it's decreasing the signal that makes us want to eat more and it's increasing the signal that tells us we're full. So that's essentially how leptin is working. So again, leptin is being secreted from these fat cells as a protective mechanism of overexpansion. Now, if we have too much body fat, leptin is gonna get released and it's gonna decrease our food intake. And normally insulin should fall and you should lose weight. So in a state of insulin resistance, the insulin levels, they end up staying persistently high. So remember in insulin resistance, there's really two main things that has to happen. You have to have one, high hormone levels, and two, a constant stimulus. So these two things must happen in order for this insulin resistance to occur. Again, I mentioned this in the previous podcast. So if, le if insulin stays high, leptin has to stay high too. So they're both being, they're both being secreted at high levels. And as he puts it here, as with all hormones, exposure creates resistance. So persistently high leptin creates leptin resistance, found in common, which is found in common obesity. So again, because leptin is a hormone, it, it can develop resistance as well, just like insulin. So there is really this tug of war going on between insulin and leptin. And if we're eating too much sugar, ultimately what happens is that insulin will end up winning over leptin and we're going to begin to gain too much fat. And uh, this protective mechanism of leptin, it, it no longer works because, again, leptin is a hormone and we, we become resistant to it. So that is essentially how insulin is, is creating this abdominal obesity. It's beating out the signal of leptin. And the second part I wanted to talk about was this high blood pressure. So essential hypertension is this phrase that we use when we when we're talking about high blood pressure and we call it essential hypertension because there's no real specific cause that can be found for its development so essential hypertension is really when you have this blood pressure of 130 over 85 so a systolic of 130 diastolic of 85 and he's hypothesizing that hyperinsulinemia is really the thing that's playing a role here in hypertension and he puts here the, a complete review of all available studies estimated that hyperinsulinemia increases the risk of hypertension by 63%. And it does this by, by various mechanisms. So the first way insulin does this was, is increases blood pressure through an increase in cardiac output. So the cardiac output is the, the contractile force of our heart. And insulin actually increases our cardiac output. It can also increase the volume of blood in, circul in circulation by increasing the kidney's ability to reabsorb uh, sodium or salt. So it increases cardiac output, increases the reabsorption of, of sodium, and it also stimulates ADH, which is antidiuretic hormone. Again, antidiuresis, so we're holding on to more water, and it helps uh, uh, this body reabsorb more water. So this accumulation of salt retention and water retention increases overall blood volume. And this overall blood volume is causing this higher blood pressure. And the one last mechanism that is contributing to this hypertension is insulin is, has also been known to constrict our blood vessels. 
So this increases the pressure inside our, our blood vessels and increasing this, this hyper, you know, increasing our blood pressure. So through all those mechanisms, insulin is, is creating hypertension. I'm not fully convinced that insulin is the answer. I think there's something else going on. I think it can definitely play a role. But he, he's he basically hypothesizing that insulin is the thing that's driving our hypertension. So it's not only driving this hypertension, it's driving the obesity, it's driving the high blood glucose, it's driving our high triglycerides, our low HDL, our high LDL. All these things are happening because of the insulin, excess of insulin. Now, why does this metabolic syndrome matter? Well, we know that metabolic syndrome significantly increases the risk of all of the modern metabolic diseases like heart attack, stroke, peripheral vascular disease, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, and cancer. So the chances that you, you have all these, all these syndromes together, it's not likely. You probably have maybe like two or three out of the actual criteria of metabolic syndrome. But we know that when, when you develop this metabolic syndrome, your chances of developing these diseases that I just listed are way higher. So this is why metabolic syndrome matters. Now, this next section I, I wanted to talk about was exactly like protective mechanisms that are going on in our body so there's obesity and a a few other things i'm going to get to are actually protective mechanisms that we didn't really really realize like why exactly are we getting fatter so he puts it here that obesity insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction are all protective mechanisms so so how is this possible obesity tries to prevent dnl de novo lipogenesis from overwhelming the liver by safely storing the newly created fat in our adipocytes. So fat is actually where it should be um, with DNL. We know that we, we know this because if we if you think about this genetic disorder called lipodystrophy, which is uh, characterized by a lack of fat cells, we know there's a, a, a manifestation of metabolic syndrome going on here. So there's fat, a fatty liver, elevated triglycerides, high insulin resistance without without the weight gain. So this is the, the example of lipodystrophy is showing how this this fat cells are actually protecting our other cells from accumulating fat and protecting protecting us from developing diabetes. Now, without adipocytes, fat must be stored inside the organs, which I've mentioned uh, multiple times, which is causing the metabolic syndrome. So Obesity is, again, this first-line defense against the root problem of hyperinsulinemia and also insulin resistance. Now, this second line of defense is, I, I, again, the, the this insulin resistance. So, he puts it here that, similarly, insulin resistance is the body's attempt to prevent fat from amassing in the internal organs by preventing it from entering. So, the liver refuses to allow more glucose in, to enter because it is already overfilled. Remember the overflow phenomenon I talked about? And the, the result is visible as insulin resistance, which, which represents this second protective mechanism. So obesity, first line defense, second line of defense, insulin resistance, third line of defense is complete shutdown of the, the pancreatic production of insulin. So th- this is really the main, the main thing that's, that's pr- trying to protect us from developing type 2 diabetes is the obesity is the insulin resistance all this stuff is going on because because of of too much sugar essentially so he puts it here that 
all the conditions we thought were the problem, obesity, insulin resistance, and beta cell dysfunction, are actually the body's solutions to, to a single root cause. And again, this root cause is too much sugar. So when we understand the root cause of something, the answers to the problems like type 2 diabetes become very obvious. So essentially, if we get rid of the sugar and lower the insulin, we're going to be solving the problem. So that's that's the metabolic syndrome connection going on here. Remember that obesity, insulin resistance, and the shutting down of pancreatic production of insulin are all actually protecting, are trying to protect us from developing type 2 diabetes. So that is part three of the diabetes code. It was a little bit more confusing, uh, but it had a lot of good information when it came to this dual effect going on. So it's not just this insulin resistance that's going on. We have to see beta cell dysfunction occur as well. So these are the two arms of developing full-blown diabetes. And this was part three of the diabetes code. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, There can be some confusing parts, so you can read the book yourself or look up more YouTube videos or read up on Dr. Dr. Lustig who is kind of like the spearheading the the fight against fructose. So again, this is part three. Next part, I'm going to talk about how not to solve. So next part is how not to solve diabetes, how not to treat type 2 diabetes. And the last part is going to be what we should actually be doing to help treat diabetes. So I hope you enjoyed and I hope you tune in again.